Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, and I love New York. Rediscovering New York is a show about the history, texture, and current vibe of our amazing city. On most programs, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood, exploring its history and its current energy. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, musicians, artists, and neighborhood personalities. Sometimes, like tonight, we host a show about an interesting and vital color of the city that is not focused on one particular neighborhood. Prior episodes have covered the history of U.S. presidents who came or who lived in New York. We talked about the history of the women's suffrage movement in New York and in Brooklyn particularly. We've covered the history of Irish immigrants who came to New York. We had special episodes during Stonewall 50 about the city's LGBT history. We've explored the history of bicycles and cycling, and even had shows on the history of punk and opera in the city. They were separate shows, by the way. Uh, In the future, we may journey to some of the city's parks or the subway, or the city in the age of a different particular social movement. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Uh, Tonight's one of the special shows where we're not focusing on a neighborhood. We're going to take a trip across the East River. Two trips across the East River, in fact. Uh, This is a tale of two bridges. We're going to cross the Brooklyn Bridge, and then we're going to also talk about the Ed Koch-Queensborough Bridge, although as many of us New Yorkers still know it as the 59th Street Bridge. My first guest is a returning Rediscovering New York guest, Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. Joyce is a recognized expert and educator in New York history, and for over 40 years, she's been guiding New Yorkers and visitors alike to rave reviews through her private walking tours, as well as tours open to the public. Joyce has published two guidebooks, From Windmills to the World Trade Center, A Walking Guide Through the History of Lower Manhattan, and also From Trout Stream to Bohemia, A Walking Guide Through the History of Greenwich Village. She's contributed entries to the Encyclopedia of New York City, Her article, Learning on Foot, Walking Tours of New York City, appeared in the Parents League 2007 review. And if this all isn't enough, the New York Times has called Joyce the doyenne of New York City tour guides, a compliment any tour guide would love to have. And we welcome back Joyce Gold to Rediscover New York. Welcome, Joyce. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here. Some of our listeners know about your personal history, but I'm sure we have some listeners who don't. You're not originally from New York City, are you? No, I'm from a small town in Pennsylvania. Hazleton, PA is where I was born. But I moved to New York uh, in the ninth grade with my family, so I've been here for quite a long time. And how did you get into the business of illuminating and entertaining (laughs) New Yorkers about our neighborhoods and about our history? Well, you know, Manhattan is 13 miles long, and the part that was first really settled by European people in the early 1600s was the southern tip of the island. And in the 1970s, I was a computer analyst working in that neighborhood at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Um, One day, I was in a wonderful old bookshop, Mendoza's, long gone, and picked up a 100-year-old guidebook about New York a century before that. And they talked about the layers of time on all the streets that I walked through coming from the subway to my office every day. And I was hooked. Also, it turned out that my cubicle was on the site of the Battle of Golden Hill. 
Many people call that the first battle of the American Revolution. So for my cubicle to be on such a fascinating place and my walk to and from the subway making uh, me much more interested in the area around me, I was hooked. Well, we've talked a lot about different neighborhoods on Rediscovering New York. Today is, is one of those special episodes where we're going to talk about something uh, as not seemingly not as interesting as transportation, but transportation in the city is extremely historical and really fascinating. The Brooklyn Bridge, it's iconic. I wouldn't be surprised if most adults in the United States, if you showed them a picture of the Brooklyn Bridge, that they didn't know what it was, that they wouldn't be able to identify it. In fact, uh, probably between that and the Golden Gate Bridge, it's probably the most identifiable bridges that any American would know about, uh, about American bridges. There's so much to talk about having to do with the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, first, simple question. It wasn't originally called the Brooklyn Bridge, was it? No, it had a couple of different names. It uh, connected two separate cities. In fact, it connected the political centers of two separate cities. That's what it was all about. And so they included the river in one of its names, the Great East River Bridge. Then it was called the Great East River Suspension Bridge. And at the dedication in 1883, New York and Brooklyn Bridge. So everybody calls it the Brooklyn Bridge. And then later on, we get the Manhattan Bridge. So the other part of that original name is living, but not for the particular bridge that we're talking about this evening. Mm. Well, let's talk about transportation at the time, um, which was becoming more and more important in the United States in terms of, of transportation within cities as the U.S. was rapidly industrializing. Mm -hmm. This was right after the Civil War. Uh, and the movement of people and goods within the same city became you know, much more important because of production and because uh, cities were growing and, and movement of people to get to, to and from jobs. I have two questions that, that seem almost like they come together. One is, what was the relationship between then New York, because New York was, didn't include Brooklyn, and Brooklyn at the time uh, that the bridge was conceived? And the second, uh, where did the ferries that serve both those cities operate from on both sides of the East River? Well, there were over a dozen ferries that connected Manhattan and Brooklyn, and they left for from whatever part, say, in Manhattan people wanted to go from. The very first one was uh, what is now called Peck Slip. As a matter of fact, there's a new public school on Peck Slip that has a fabulous, I just discovered this, a fabulous work of art showing the very first ferry. And it went to Brooklyn. Brooklyn in the 1600s pretty much supplied Manhattan with food. And uh, people sometimes came from Hick Street with their vegetables, and I think that's where the term Hick He's a hick, meaning a rustic, <laughs> originated a, a very hip neighborhood of Brooklyn today in Brooklyn Heights is Hick Street. So uh, the, the lower, uh, the, the ferry that today goes to Governor's Island, but there were, there were over a dozen different ferries. It was very direct. So what, what were some of the forces that had people who were leading the city or running the city say, okay, time for us to build a bridge? Well, you know, Manhattan is an island 13 by two and a half miles at its widest, and uh, you can really only go up. You can't really ex extend out, but they tried to expend, extend out, and that's what the bridges were about. They had already uh, 
put new uh, transportation in Manhattan. This is started in 1867, but the bridge isn't really completed until 1883. And in that interim, four of our avenues in Manhattan got elevated trains over them. So there was a big push to make accessibility more uh, better. In fact, the L's pretty much opened up the Upper West Side and Harlem to upper middle class people. Uh, transportation is always the name of the game, whether you're talking about a country, a city, or a neighborhood. Uh, as far as the engineers of the bridge and the people managing construction, it was a family. It was uh, three yes. different people, the Roeblings. That's right. Was there anything about, um, was there anything like the Brooklyn Bridge that they had built prior to when they designed, to when John Roebling, mm -hmm. uh, the father, well, designed the bridge? Well, John Roebling came from Prussia, and he was an engineer in Prussia, and he also studied under the philosopher for Hegel and was Hegel's favorite pupil, apparently. He comes to America to start a community, help start a community in western Pennsylvania devoted to farming, but that bored him. So he started building bridges in the United States. One was near Niagara Falls. One was uh, from Cincinnati across the Ohio River. And he had built four different bridges in this country before he started on the Brooklyn Bridge. This was a time when there were lots of news articles bemoaning that some bridge just fell with a lot of people on it, fell into the river, and there was really bad engineering for a lot of the other bridges, and he thought he could do better. And it's interesting you mentioned the ferry boats because he was stuck in a ferry boat uh, actually before the Civil War because it was icy and thought that he could do something far beyond what anybody had ever done designing a bridge. But because of the Civil War, he didn't begin getting approval and getting financing and getting the go-ahead for the Brooklyn Bridge until after the Civil War. Uh, we'll talk about the design of the Brooklyn Bridge shortly, but, th but there was a bridge that he designed over uh, over one of the rivers. In the, uh, it, I think it licked someplace in Ohio and Kentucky. That's right. That's the, what I just said. The Roebling Bridge. That's right. Okay. Right. He had done four, and one at Niagara Falls and one over to Kentucky from Cincinnati mm -hmm. was one of the others. But John Roebling never got to uh, see the fruits of his labor with the Brooklyn Bridge. What, That's right. What happened to him? Such a sad story. Well, soon after he got the go-ahead from the people in charge of the city, uh, he was standing on a pier on the Brooklyn side trying to wave to his uh, staffer on the Manhattan side. They were trying to figure out where to put the towers of the bridge. And he was focused on that not noticing that a tugboat was coming near him. The tugboat crushed his foot. And uh, three weeks later, as the great David McCullough said in The Great Bridge, his mouth has frozen into an eerie grin, and he is dead of lockjaw. And it was left to his 32-year-old son, Washington Roebling, to deliver what the father had promised with many, many, many decisions yet to be made. Did, the, did Washington also uh, design any of the bridge, or was the bridge, was most of the design of the bridge done by John? Well, he designed a great part of it. Uh, he had studied uh, at RPI, Rensselaer uh, Polytech, in uh, Troy, New York. In fact, his parents so supported him that they moved to Troy while he was in college. His father was very anti-slavery and told Washington to join the Union cause in the Civil War 
during the war itself, Washington designed many bridges. So he did have a lot of experience, and he was even going through Europe at the time of his, near his father's demise to uh, see what the Krupp ironworks in Germany were doing and getting more international information. Uh, so that was Washington Roebling, who was only 32 years old. So the father had designed a bridge that was more than twice as long as the next longest single-span suspension bridge in the world. But there were many more decisions that had yet to be decided. For example, it was uh, 44 feet down under the water on the Brooklyn side, and they were digging to put the foundations. Uh, people were coming up and getting sick, and they didn't know why. And on the, on the Manhattan side, they were digging 88 feet, and people were coming up and dying. So one of the things Washington Roebling had to figure out was why. It turned out it was the bends, but they really hadn't known that beforehand. This was the first time in human history where people were actually dying of compressed air. Of exactly. Having breathing compressed air. Exactly. They were underwater sometimes for a day at a time and came up too quickly. Another big decision that Washington had to make, they were spending a lot of money, people were dying, people were getting sick, and they had not hit red, uh, bedrock yet under the river. And Washington had, and they to, had to hit. They thought they had to hit bedrock to put the base right. of the towers on. So to make it stable enough for all the traffic and the people that would go along it. And uh, it would be very expensive to go down more than 88 feet. So Washington made a really fateful, and it turned out to be correct decision, they analyzed the soil under the river on the Manhattan side, figured it hadn't moved in 10,000 years, so they took a very important decision to put the structure on soil under the river and not wait for the uh, something firmer. And that was on the Manhattan side? Correct. Okay. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about briefly uh, about uh, another member of the Roebling family who did a lot of work on the bridge. Uh, before we talk about the design and the construction of the bridge. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day.
We're back to A Tale of Two Bridges. Uh, the first bridge on the program is the Brooklyn Bridge. We're talking about and visiting and crossing the East River on. And our first guest is Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. Joyce, uh, what are some of the interesting tours you have coming up in the next couple of weeks? Well, I have some wonderful tours. I have public pre-scheduled tours, and then mostly what I do are private tours. Uh, coming up this next weekend is the brand new part of the city called the Hudson Yards. And I try to explain what went into making that, how some of the decisions were made, and help people know that they can like some of it, not like some of it, and uh, it's up to them to decide what they think of it all. And we have to have a program on Hudson Yards at some point, because I know you have an a, a interesting viewpoint on the design of the place. Definitely um, do. Uh, people can find out about that on your website. My website is Joyce Gold History Tours. Dot com. And you have an Instagram page. Yes, I do. And that's Joyce Gold History Tours also. Oh, wonderful. Okay. Well, getting back to the Brooklyn Bridge, there's one other person who is a major uh, person who, who worked on the bridge. And that was, uh, she was actually extraordinary. And she was largely responsible for overseeing the construction of the bridge. And when the bridge was going up, she didn't even have the right to vote. That is correct. Emily Roebling. Uh, an amazing woman who uh, was married to Washington Roebling. And after four months, uh, I'm sorry, four years of his working on the bridge, he gets the bends, can never again go out to the site while it's being built, although he does eventually go out to it. And for the next 10 years after he becomes infirm, uh, Emily Roebling pretty much runs the show. She started out by getting his directions and delivering them to the foreman on the site, but she uh, ended up deciding some of the very important engineering decisions and was really quite a good engineer herself. She also uh, has a distinction of being one of the first women to go to a particular graduate school in the city. Oh, she did. She went to NYU, but actually not to the law school. She, uh, women were not quite yet admitted to the law school, uh, but there was something. They decided that perhaps women should know about law, even though, of course, they could never be lawyers. So they started the women's law class, and she uh, did a very stellar essay at that point. And the essay for which she got a prize was how, in America, legally, women were classed with children and insane people. And uh, she talked about it uh, like women being killed on the pyre of their, uh, their husband's death and funeral in Asia. Uh, her husband, her uh, hus husband was around. I don't know his opinion, but her son and her professor were appalled at her point of view. Uh, at opening day, well, there was a kind of a pre-opening day, <clears throat> and she was the first person actually to cross the completed bridge, but she really wasn't mentioned by the dignitaries that were there for her 10 years of work. Oh, wow. Well, let's talk about the design of the bridge. Um, how revolutionary was the design of the Brooklyn Bridge? Well, it was using uh, braided steel wire that was a Roebling invention uh, that made it extremely firm. It was more than twice as long as the longest single-span suspension bridge otherwise in the world, and it kept that uh, record of being the world's longest bridge 
for 20 years until the next, uh, the next bridge across the river, which opened in 1903, the Williamsburg Bridge. Oh. So it was quite, quite amazing. I mean, the, the Brooklyn Bridge is actually uses two designs. It's a cable-stayed bridge because of all those uh, cables, and it's also a suspension bridge. That's right. It's extremely strong. And it's, it's good that it's extremely strong because there was a lot of crooked dealing going on at the time. And by manipulating largely by Boss Tweed, the, the famous white-collar crook who ran a lot of the city at this point, uh, a manufacturer who made substandard material got into the making of the bridge. But it was designed to be about four times as strong as that they thought it had to be. So that hasn't really weakened the bridge in all these years since then. Were there any engineering challenges that had to be addressed uh, in order to, to build the bridge? There were. Hmm. Including, <laughs> including the, building the towers and also the, uh, getting the, that, the cable done. The towers are particularly interesting. Let me say something about that because they're extreme. It's very identifiable, a bridge. Uh, because it's very gothic in its look. As a matter of fact, the towers look like lancet windows of an English cathedral. And uh, Roebling had the idea, John Roebling had the idea that it was a work of art as well as a work of function and that it should be more beautiful than functionally it really had to be. And he also symbolically wanted to connect the past with the present. It also had to be very high above the river because this was an, an era where there still were quite a few sailing ships and they had to be able to clear the bridge. Well, there were, uh, in construction of this bridge, there were um, pretty bad working conditions. We talked about the caissons that were, had to be dug yeah. and with, with, with pressurized air. In fact, I saw a, a very moving play uh, about six months ago in Bushwick. It was called Caisson. It was about... Uh, the workers who worked in those caissons. Yes, at least 20 people died in the making of the bridge. Some were hit by fa falling debris and other things. Some drowned, and of course the caisson disease, until they figured it out, lost a lot of life. So they finished the construction of the towers, and that's when they started to uh, spin, the spin the steel to build the actual suspension, uh, to build the cables and that's to build right. the suspension across. Um, and I want to add that new processes were invented for actually spinning of the cables that would support the bridge. Um, who paid for the bridge's construction? Well, I think it was the city uh, payment, uh, cities of Brooklyn and of New York. And the project, I was reading, the project almost ran out of money midway through construction. And they had to go back uh, to the legislature and get some more funds. And I found an interesting little factoid. The bonds to build the bridge were not paid off until 1953, <laughs> 17 years, 70 years after the bridge opened. Um, and that was not the only thing that threatening the completion of the bridge. Uh, there were lawsuits involved with it. Uh, there were some of the uh, uh, dock and uh, pier owners who, north of the bridge actually took the uh, city to court to stop the construction because they claimed it would, it would, it would hamper their commerce. Mm -hmm. But the courts found that the bridge was legal and they let it go forward. Well, you know, one way they tried to raise money for the bridge was to rent out storage space in the anchorage. And in the process of building the bridge, on the Manhattan side especially, they uprooted a lot of people who sold liquor. So that was, I think, one of the reasons, aside from the financial reason, 
that in both anchorages, people rented space to store champagne and other wines. It was about 10 times as expensive on the Manhattan side, but this went on. I used to think it had to do with prohibition, but it didn't. It was just fundraising to keep the bridge in, in running order. Well, the bridge is completed, the big opening ceremony in May of 1883. President Chester Arthur was here. He actually was a New Yorker, mm-hmm. uh, one, of the, uh, one of the New Yorkers who ascended to the presidency, and uh, also the mayor of New York and the mayor of Brooklyn. Uh, and, of course, Emily Roebling, though, who was not officially acknowledged as having been the first person to officially walk across the bridge after it opened. Um, would the use of the bridge in the early days been different? Would it have looked different from the way the Brooklyn Bridge is used now? Well, there were, there were, no, there were no bicycle riders on it for a very long time. And they kept having to make more and more access to the bridge. So the whole printing house square, which is where dozens of New York newspapers were being published before 1904, uh, pretty much was decimated by extending the in-ramps to the bridge itself. And that was the br- on the Manhattan side? That's right. Uh-huh. The New York Herald, when we first got our subway in 1904, was induced to moving to 34th Street, now called Herald Square. The New York Times in 1904 was induced to moving to 42nd Street, which is why it's now called Times Square. And they were somewhat uprooted by the entrance uh, additions to the Brooklyn Bridge. Now, uh, there's a very interesting connection with other transportation in Brooklyn. Brooklyn, people got around a lot by trolleys. In fact, Brooklynites at one point had been known as trolley dodgers, which is why the baseball team ended up being called the Dodgers. Hmm. What was the impact in either borough in the years immediately following the bridge's construction? Well, the city started expanding out. Uh, Brooklyn had actually grown quite a bit, especially during the Civil War, which ends in 1865, because a huge amount of manufacturing and medical uh, equipment came from Brooklyn. And so that was growing. Manhattan was growing in a big way. Uh, The population of Manhattan was booming all through the 19th century. In 1820, Manhattan had 123,000. By 1860, it was six times that many. And by the end of the um, century, when four nearby districts, including Brooklyn, joined Manhattan, we had three and a half million people in this city, and only London in the world had more. So expanding into Brooklyn was definitely part of that. Certainly the Erie Canal of 1825 and other things were as well. But some say that one of the reasons, there are others, that Brooklyn in 18, uh, for 1898 votes to join and lose its status as the third most populated city in the country and to join New York City, Manhattan, to become greater New York had to do with the presence of the Brooklyn Bridge sort of expanding the limits of the island. And of course, the Brooklyn Bridge uh, uh, makes part of Brooklyn much more accessible as a bedroom community. We had Brooklyn Heights and Fort Greene that were largely established and built on before the bridge opened, but uh, later on, beginning in the 1880s, we had the really the, the buildup of Park Slope, which yes. was not far from the bridge. Um, a lot of people moved from Brooklyn Heights to Park Slope once the bridge came about in order to avoid some of the crowds that they didn't really 
been appealed to them. And the years immediately following the bridge's opening also led to the decline, uh, at least aesthetically, of some of the streets in Brooklyn Heights that were close to the bridge because it became so so well trafficked, mm-hmm. uh, traveled. Um, one other little interesting thing: people jump from bridges. That's been happened. Oh, yes. That happens a lot throughout history. But not everyone who jumped off the Brooklyn Bridge has died. There were a couple of daredevils in the beginning who. Uh, That's right, and also not everybody who jumped off the Brick- Brooklyn Bridge actually jumped, <laughs> because there was a famous Steve Brody, who said he jumped. Had apparently had paid off a ferry boat guy to say he saw him jump, and probably hadn't jumped. But uh, it was a very good promotion for the bar he owned on the Bowery. It was kind of a celebrity kind of thing. And for many years, the term to do a Brody was because of him. There was a swimming instructor named Robert Odlum who did jump and didn't survive. But other people have jumped, and some have lived, and some have not. Well, Joyce, this has been fascinating. I'm sorry we're out of time for the segment. Uh, Our first guest on our Tale of Two Bridges has been Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. Joyce was called by the New York Times the Doyenne of New York Tour Guides. You can find out about Joyce's tours on JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. And uh, I can say, having taken them, they're very worthwhile. Joyce, thanks for being on Rediscovering New York. Thank you so much, Jeff. We'll be back in a moment. And when we are, we will be hearing from our second guest, who also is a very accomplished tour guide in New York with a uh, very special bridge in the city. Be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi. I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors. The Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212 495 0317. Our show is about New York, especially its neighborhoods and the myriad textures of our amazing city. 
There's another great show about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. and can be heard at voiceamerica.com and on podcast. You can like us on Facebook. Our page is Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman, an original name I know. And also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. The handle there is Jeff Goodman NYC, another original concoction, but there you have it. If you have comments or questions or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we get to our second guest, even though this is not a show about the real estate business in New York, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out of, or within New York, I would love to help you all with your real estate needs. You can reach me and my team at 646-306-4761. Well, I'd like to welcome my second guest to Rediscovering New York, where we look at a bridge that if you talked about covering two bridges in New York, many people would say they want to look at the Brooklyn Bridge. And the second bridge might be the Verrazano Bridge or the George Washington Bridge. Uh, maybe even the Williamsburg Bridge, but uh, since we're going across the East River, we're going to go to another borough, Queens, and we're going to be looking at the Ed Koch Queensboro Bridge. My second guest is Justin Rivers. Justin is the Chief Experience Officer for Untapped Cities and a tour guide in New York City. Justin started his career as a New York City middle school English and language arts teacher on the Lower East Side. He used to drag his students to historic sites across the city, sounds like my kind of teacher, Justin, <laughs> ever to bring New York's lesser-known stories to life. That's how he became co-creator of The Wonder City, a graphic novel that reimagines New York City's entire history. He was also the playwright and producer of The Eternal Space, an off-Broadway play that centered on the demolition of New York City's Pennsylvania Station. It was this production and one simple tweet that he fell head over heels for, for untapped cities, whom he partnered with for his Remnants of Penn Station tour. I've got to go on that one sometime. <laughs> Along with his role as Chief Experience Officer, Justin is the founding director of the Character Connection Initiative. It's a nonprofit that connects character education and mindfulness to middle school curricula. He is also creator and lead guide for some of Untapped City's popular tours, including the underground tour of the New York City subway, the tour of the Remnants of Dutch New Amsterdam, the Secrets of the Brooklyn Bridge tour, Tour the remnants of the world's fair flushing meadow. Of, sorry, tour the remnants of the world's fair <laughs> flushing meadow. Oh, I'm getting tongue tied over that. Of the world's fair and flushing meadow. The tour of the secrets of Coney Island, the maritime history of New York, the hidden gems of Rafael Guastavino tour, and the art in New York City subway walking tour. Justin Rivers, welcome to Rediscovering New York. Thank you very much for having me. It's an honor to be here. Are you originally from the city? From here? Uh, right over the bridge, born in Hackensack, New Jersey. Uh, huh? Spent the early part of my life there. Then my parents ran away to the country, uh, which was Ringwood, about a half hour north uh, in uh, the new on the New York State border. And did they the, take you with them? Or were they you, did. Okay. Yeah, no. Okay. They, I considered staying behind because I did. I like the urban life, but uh, they wanted to live on the side of a mountain overlooking New York. And then uh, uh, that was it. High school, I got out. <laughs> you got out of the country I, and came back to the city. I they did. Back, I oh, did. Okay. I did. I, I moved. Uh, I went to the Bronx. I went to Fordham University oh. and never left. Great. Great. Yeah. Where do you live now? 
Island Brooklyn, Windsor oh. Terrace. Okay, cool. cool yeah, right fun. between the cemetery and the park. So I feel pretty, uh, pretty lucky about that. Oh, great, great. Yeah. You have quite a varied and fascinating career. How did you get from an English and language arts teacher to being a tour guide and, in fact, chief experience officer of Untapped Cities? Every time I tell this story, I th- it's like going on a blind date and falling madly in love right from the very beginning. Um, so first of all, as a teacher, as mentioned, I uh, had very tough kids from the Lower East Side who absolutely wanted nothing to do with history. I'd tell them, get out their history books, and they would grunt and moan and you know, Mr. We don't want to do this. And I said, all right, well, listen, here's the deal. You live in the most historically dense uh, area of the country. You know, you have 400 years of history right outside your door. Uh, let's go. And it actually started with the fence at Bowling Green. You know, be able to touch the fence at Bowling Green and say history happened here. They cut off the crowns uh, and they loved it. And so I enjoyed having that experiential history uh, interaction with them. Then I go on to write uh, this play about Penn Station called The Eternal Space and um, how old were the kids that you uh, mainly between the ages of 12 to 14? Uh-huh. So we're talking like eh, seventh, eighth, sometimes sixth graders. Um, and they loved it. They liked being out. They loved realizing that they they came from a place of history because they didn't think about that. You know, a lot of them came from the projects on the on the east side and didn't feel like they lived in an important area. Um, and that's one of the things I loved showing New Yorkers a new side of the city that they don't certainly recognize. It's why I got into Untapped. Um, but yeah, no, I wrote the play and I reached out to Michelle Young, who was founder of Untapped. And I said, hey, I got this kooky idea for a tour. I'm sure you'll probably ignore me. Uh, and it's a Remnants of Penn Station tour. And she got back to me immediately and she said, I mean, are you kidding me? Yes, let's do it. Um, and, you know, again, when you think about iconic spots in New York to do tours of probably bottom of the list would be Penn Station uh, because everybody's usually trying to get out. Um, but there's a lot going on there. It's uh, It's been running for close to five years now. Thousands of people have taken it, which is still amazing. Wow. Yeah, yeah, my mother's quote, uh, I probably should not curse on the radio, but my mother's quote, she's a tough, she's a tough Jersey gal. She says, I can't believe people still pay you to take them through that beep hole. <laughs> And I said, they do. I actually start Not to the- paraphrase a particular national politician who refers to places with that. Exactly. Name, <laughs> uh, and so uh, I, uh, I tell that story at the top of the tour and everybody laughs hysterically. And then they're like, oh, wait a minute. We are. Uh, and absolutely love it. It's a lot of fun. Um, and it was trial by fire. If you could do a tour in Penn Station, you could do a tour absolutely anywhere. And so uh, that's how it all started. And um, I had all this information. Untapped Cities was just an online magazine at that point. They were moving on into experiences. And... Um, uh, Michelle had said, do you have any other ideas? And from doing the Wonder City, which you mentioned in the bio, which was this idea a friend and I hatched to do a graphic novel uh, that would reimagine New York's history to make it more palatable to students. I did it for my students. Um, I had all this information, Dutch New Amsterdam, all these Coney Island, Coney Island's developmental history. And um, I just started putting them into tours. Basically, I was like, yes, I could develop all of these tours. And so, you know, I'm, I'm like a machine. I just keep going. But and that's how I became chief experience officer. So, well, I could relate to that being yeah. like a machine to keep on going and try, coming up with new content over and over again, over and over again. Um, so I, I got to go on the on the remnants in Penn Station. Please tour. do. Of course, love, one of the love to have you. The crimes in New York was get, was getting rid of Penn Station. But it was that that also gave us the landmark. Yes. Law, yes. Which, I, which we're grateful to have that. Yes. 
Um, moving on to this famous bridge, I, I, you know, I have trouble calling it the Ed Koch Queensboro Bridge. Everybody does. Uh, to me, it's a 59th <laughs> Street Bridge, so yeah. we'll go with that for a bit. Before the bridge was conceived, there were already two spans across the East, uh, East River. Um, they went to Brooklyn. The Brooklyn Bridge was first, as we talked about. Then the Williamsburg Bridge um, was completed in 1903. The Manhattan Bridge actually was completed the same time as, as the Queensboro Bridge. Same year. Um, why was there nothing across the East River to Queens until after two substantial bridges had, had already been built? Well, uh, you know... As I mean, to Brooklyn. To right. Well, I mean, as Joyce accurately pointed out, uh, Brooklyn was its own very large established city at the time before, the, you know, the Greater New York creation in 1898, and Queens really was not. I, you know, Queens' population was much less than Brooklyn um, by leaps and bounds. And um, I think it was 100, according to the census, it was about 153,000 in 1900. And at that point, there were more than a million people living in Brooklyn. Right, exactly. So, I, you know, Queens is a little bit of cricket. Cricket at that time, it was more of, you know, farmland open expanses. You did have a story and you had Long Island City, which is where industry was really starting to churn over in Queens, but nothing like you had over in Brooklyn. And so, you know, for population issues, the bridges to Brooklyn seemed to be more important, especially Williamsburg. Uh, one of the reasons why they built the Williamsburg Bridge was to sort of get people out of the Lower East Side. You know, the Jews Highway, they called it, just to help to alleviate what was going on uh, in the tenements over there. And it, it took very well. But the idea was when they unified New York, when uh, the five boroughs come together in 1898, they had found already on the plan since the 1830s a bridge to Queens. Uh, why don't we have a bridge to Queens yet? Um, and so the... Uh, a newly appointed commission basically took up the idea. Hmm. Uh, was, was there ferry service between Manhattan and Queens back then? It's, I, it, the East River currents are really very strong. Right. And there's an island in the way. Yes, yeah, Roosevelt <laughs> Island is a very, is a very long block. Um, there were these things called uh, train floats, actually. Uh, and what they were were they were sort of like barges where they would put train cars on. Uh, and certain vehicles, and they would navigate around Roosevelt Island. But it wasn't a very popular way to get back and forth, and it was very arduous, mainly because of what you said, the currents and the block of the island, and people had actually, uh, there was a ferry to what was then Blackwell's, and then a ferry on the other side. So a lot of people used uh, Blackwell's as like a stopping point. Um, but uh, no, I mean, basically, that was about it. There was no regular ferry service, and that was one of the reasons why Queens was very underdeveloped, uh, especially in that area, with the exception of Long Island City and Astoria, which benefited from a lot of rail that was connected back down to Brooklyn. Hmm. By the time the, uh, the 59th Street Bridge was, was conceived, there was already a different kind of apparatus in the city that was designing bridges than had been the case with the Brooklyn Bridge. Hmm. What was the public office that actually built the bridge? It was called, quite simply, it's almost like a Monty Python sketch, the Department of Bridges. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was it. All right, simple question, simple answer. <laughs> it was the Department of Bridges. And the reason why the Department of Bridges was started was because after the Brooklyn Bridge, it was very quickly realized that once New York becomes five boroughs, more bridges would need to be built and the city should be behind them. So it was created by Seth Lowe, the mayor at the time. Seth Lowe was all, you mean to the Brooklyn Bridge? He, he was the mayor of Brooklyn? Yeah. Yes, correct. okay, right, sorry, right. sorry. Um, who were the designers of the, of the 59th Street Bridge? So uh, two, two big names behind it, Gustav Lindenthal and Henry Horn Bostel, not to be confused with Henry Hornblower, which a lot of people call him uh, by accident. But uh, they were both involved in building the Williamsburg Bridge. Leffert Buck was really the guy who was the big, um, 
personality on the Williamsburg Bridge. He had a little bit to do with Queensboro, but they they turned it over mainly to uh, Hornbostel and Lindenthal. Hmm. What were well, actually, uh, we're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the design of the bridge and uh, other uh, little known facts about the Ed Koch Queensboro Bridge. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media. My guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Talkingalternative.com We're back. To rediscovering New York in the second part of our Tale of Two Bridges episode. We're crossing uh, the East River twice, this time to Queens, on the Ed Koch-Queensboro Bridge, also lovingly known by many of us as the 59th Street Bridge. Uh, our second guest is Justin Rivers, the Chief Experience Officer and Lead Tour Guide for Untapped Cities. Uh, Justin told us a lot about uh, some of the tours that Untapped Cities have done, has done. Justin, do you have any tours coming up in the next couple of weeks that uh, you think are especially interesting? Uh, I do. Um, well, we normally run our subways and Grand Centrals uh, during the week and on the weekends, but I will be doing my Remnants of Penn Station tour in two weeks, which I do roughly once or twice a month, which is a big hit. Um, and also my Remnants of World's Fair in Flushing Meadows, which I know is a very... Marbly title. Uh, I'll be doing that next week on the just 20th. for me when I get tongue tied over. No, it's it's. Else. I'm the remnants guy, so that's my thing. I love to talk about remnants, and they mix into all the titles of the tours. But that's coming up next weekend. And people can find out about it. The website is uh, untapcities.com/tours. Oh, great. Okay. Was there anything revolutionary technologically that went into the construction of the 59th Street Bridge, like the Brooklyn Bridge, or was all the technology that was used? Just sort of the same old, same old, and they just built another bridge. Uh, well, I mean, there's a little bit of yes and no. So, I mean, the design, the the cantilever truss was revolutionary at the time. It was a fairly new bridge technology. Uh, suspension bridges, after the Roeblings did them, became very in fashion, and most of the bridges uh, in South Manhattan going over to Brooklyn and Queens uh, were suspension bridges, but the 
The Queensboro was not. It was a truss bridge. And basically, the cantilever truss uh, technology was that uh, the spans would actually, a portion of the span would serve as an anchorage for the span coming before it. And so they were sort of interlocked together, um, which gives it that very unique design that you see uh, crossing over the East River. And so that was considered revolutionary. The Tap NZ was also uh, a cantilever as well. Um, But the uh, Queensboro had a double-decker element to it, which was also considered to be fairly revolutionary at the time, and that was to be able to carry trains. Were there any engineering challenges that needed to be addressed in order to to build and finish the bridge? Well, I think one of the only engineering challenges that they foresaw in the beginning um, was bearing the weight of the trains, the amount of trains that they wanted to go over it. So the IRT 2nd Avenue elevated, went over it. Uh, Trolleys back and forth from Queens also went over it. Um, But uh, Lindenthal and Hornbostel had decided, they came up with something very revolutionary, which uh, other bridge designers has used a measurement uh, in the future where they basically had figured out that trains and movement weighed less than they did being stopped. And so there, it, was there was an ability to bring more trains over because if you kept them moving, it was less of a, of a bearing on the bridge. I think the biggest challenges to the bridge being completed were mainly political, uh, not, not engineering, actually. <laughs> well, there were a couple of enge- engineering problems. Yeah. Uh, one of the spans collapsed. Well, one of the shut. spans, yes. that One of the spans collapsed right before the bridge opened. There was a bad windstorm. It wasn't secured right. Uh, it wasn't hooked in, and it uh, it broke and actually collapsed. But yeah, that was one of the biggest challenges they had to deal with. And I also read that uh, in in the labor unrest, it, it almost resulted in a dynamite attack on yes. the bridge. Wow. Yes, yeah. wow. so there were a group of guys. So this is the time when labor is becoming very big all across the country. You're talking about uh, millions of people joining uh, labor unions all over the country. And companies didn't really like this. Big business were sort of vexed by the fact that these labor unions were taking money from them in the way that they were organized. And so they started bringing non-labor union, uh, uh, non-labor, excuse me, uh, work onto big infrastructural projects, including the Queensboro Bridge. And um, there were a group of guys that called themselves the Entertainment Committee, actually, was their, was their cute name. Uh, and they went around bombing these sites. Uh, the idea was not to hurt anybody. What they did is they would bomb the sites in the middle of the night when nobody was working on them. And so the, the Grand Dame, basically the big example, they were doing this all over the country, Omaha, L.A., uh, the big example was going to be the Queensboro Bridge. So a guy by the name of Georgie Davis, he used a, uh, as the, the Daily News called it, a nom de boom, ha ha ha, um, uh, changed his name to George O'Donnell. And um, basically he spent a lot of his evenings looking at what span he was going to blow up. He was going to use 100 pounds of dynamite. Uh, he planned when he was going to do it in the middle of the night. And then he realized that right under... Uh, the span was a firehouse where there were about 20 to 30 guys working in 24-hour shifts, and he realized, eh, I can't do this. So he actually gets arrested in uh, Massachusetts after he had thought of the attempt to bomb the bridge, and um, he confesses to it much later on saying, yeah, I was going to do it. But it, it went uncovered for a while, and then he confessed to it, and that was something that almost happened but did mm. not. 
The bridge is known by three different names. The <laughs> Queensborough, the 59th Street, and of course, uh, after our uh, famed uh, New York Marriott Koch. What was the bridge's original name? The bridge's original name was the Blackwell Island Bridge, uh, and it didn't last very long. So what happened was they were going to call the Black, uh, Blackwell Island Bridge, which of course is the name of what Roosevelt Island is now. Uh, then it was Welfare, now it's Roosevelt. But um, if you look at the old IRT maps from 1904, right before the bridge opens, you know the bridge isn't completed yet, and it says Blackwell Island Bridge, but... Um, the residents of Manhattan did not want that unsavory name <clears throat> because of the unsavory things that were going on in Blackwell's Island with, you know, the asylums and the, the prisons. Mm. You've described the bridge as the quintessential American bridge. Why? Um, mainly because it goes to Queens. Uh, it, it's not that the design of the bridge is quite elegant. It's a Beaux-Arts bridge, which I love about it um, and which we may cover uh, soon, but uh, it's the quintessential American bridge because Queens is sort of the quintessential American neighborhood, uh, mainly because the people who go back and forth to Queens are the hardworking Americans who I think it was described uh, as, you know, the guy who runs your elevator, the guy who sells you your coffee in the morning, um, and those are the people who use the Queensboro Bridge. Uh, I also think there's so much Americana around it, we don't realize it. The Brooklyn Bridge is iconic in so many ways, and as you so aptly described at the beginning of the show, if you show anybody a picture of the Brooklyn Bridge, they're going to know what it is. But the Queensboro Bridge pops up quite a lot, um, and it's in a way that's a little less recognizable. It sort of blends into the background. Uh, and I think it does really hard work, like, mm. you know, the American aesthetic. So. Um. Let's talk about the Guastavino tiles. Oh, yeah. How did all those tiles <laughs> get installed under the approaches and as part of the anchorage on the bridge? Uh, uh, Guastavino, for people who don't know who he was, he was this uh, um, uh, guy from Spain who uh, uh, built, who, who created these amazing tiles. You see them in Central Park. You see them all over the city. You see them in some buildings. How, how is it that they that they paid to have these tiles get installed under on, on the Manhattan side in the anchorages. It's, a, it's amazing that they're there. Uh, so the Guastavinos were sort of the go-to guys for all of the great Beaux-Arts architects of the time. McKimmead and White loved them. Warren and Wetmore loved them. And uh, Hornbostel loved them as well. And uh, Guastavino actually found his way into the Williamsburg Bridge, although we don't really know it because it's all out of access. We can't access the Guastavinos on the Williamsburg. But... Uh, Hornbostel had uh, come up with this idea that he wanted to do an open-air market uh, on the Manhattan side, not the Queen side. And um, the uh, it was open-air, and he nicknamed it the Cathedral. So to make it a cathedral, they bring in Guastavino. Guastavino's story is so great. Um, he had this patented, what he called fireproofing technology, these timbral vaults that he took from his home. He's a Catalan architect. And he just finds the right recipe uh, to make these gorgeous vaulted tile arch ceilings, you know, quadruply layered. And um, it, it resulted in an open air market called the Bridge Market that was absolutely uh, just gorgeous. And you can still see it. It's a little different now. Its food emporium is uh, now abandoned because it's no longer. But Guastavino's is an event space next door. And if you are in the area, go and look up into the window. It, it's amazing. Mm. It'll take your breath away. Uh, in the short time we have left, I'd like to talk uh, briefly about the impact of the bridge in modern culture. Sure. Uh, there are several references to the bridge in F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby yes. when uh, a couple of the characters drive over the bridge and see the lights of the city, and that's you know that makes it possible for people for people to behold the bridge. And of course, the automobile was uh, uh, became much more widely used in the twenties. Um, 
I don't know what the origins of Simon and Garfunkel's song from the 60s that was named the 50, that was kind of co-named the 59th Street Bridge song. It's feeling groovy. How did it get uh, that second name to it? Do you know? Yeah. So um, the 59th Street Bridge came from this idea. Uh, Paul Simon had come back from living in uh, England for a while. And um, in England, he was not very well known. But while he was away, he was becoming super famous in America. But he was super depressed in England. Uh, and he was writing these drab, depressing songs. He comes home and he realizes he's a, he's a star because of the sound of silence. And he was coming home over the bridge at 6 a.m. in the morning, the 59th Street, Queensboro Bridge. And uh, he said the day was groovy. And he went home and he quickly penned the story, uh, the pen the song, and it turns out it's his least favorite song of all of his songs. He absolutely hates it. Oh, so well. Hope that, hopefully that has nothing to do with the Ed Koch Bridge. But and, I don't know. I think he just thinks it's a little too candy. Uh, but hmm. all right. Well, Justin, <laughs> thank you. We're out of time. Oh, our, my pleasure. Our guest and our journey across the Ed Koch Queensboro Bridge, also loved as the 59th Street Bridge, has been Justin Rivers the Chief Experience Officer and Lead Tour Guide of Untapped Cities. Justin, thank you. Uh, we've just finished this week's journey across the East River to our two bridges. If you have comments or questions about the show or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook uh, and also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. That handle is jeffgoodmannyc. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, Mortgage Strategies at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off. I'm Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Halstead in New York City. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I are dedicated to our clients and come to our work with passion and the best expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding, who will be on the show next week. Stay tuned at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc for Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way with Noreen Sumter. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at TalkingAlternative.com. Talking Alternative. 
Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 